welcome to episode 77 of the Single Mother Survival Guide podcast. My name is Julia Husher and I'm the host of this show. I'm thrilled that you're here today and joining me. So welcome to the show. Now, I'm really excited about this week's episode and next week's episode. I've actually split it into two and I've got a guest who a lot of you love. He's so fantastic and really has the best advice for us. So really appreciate his his time for us. And this will be the second time that we've done this. And it's Todd Street and he's a family lawyer and it's basically a Q&A of your questions. So the questions that you have sent in to me to ask Todd, and they're all family law related, obviously. And it's really great to have these questions because a lot of them are quite similar or, you know, a lot of people have the same sort of questions. So I know that all these questions that we've picked, they apply to more than one person. You know, they're really something that a lot of you can get something out of, you know, his responses. So I really appreciate his time. We actually did this live on Facebook and we spoke a lot longer than I expected, which is why I have separated this podcast into two episodes. So welcome to the first part of that. It's a Q&A with Todd Street and let's get straight into it. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to have Todd Street back for this live podcast recording. He came on the show a couple of months ago. If you saw it, awesome. Um, He came on to answer some family law-related questions, and it was a huge success. If you didn't listen in last time, Todd is an accredited specialist in family law. He works in Thornton in Newcastle. And he also works in the areas of wills and estate planning, probate and administration, and conveyancing. And he's back today to answer some of our questions relating to family law. Todd, thank you so much for coming back and joining me today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Todd, I have to tell you that so many people emailed me to tell me how much they appreciated you and loved having you on the show. And they were just so appreciative of your advice and time. So I just wanted to express my gratitude and appreciation on behalf of everyone else as well. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Nice for you to say. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, Like last time, I reached out to the Single Mother Survival Guide community and I have a bunch of questions for you today, most of which I know would definitely help more than that specific individual who asked it. So I'm going to get straight into it. And there were a few questions regarding the changing of children's surnames from the father's name to the mothers. So I might just bunch those together and ask you those first, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So the first question is, under what circumstances will a court allow change of the child's last name to the mother's name, they were never married, if my former partner won't consent? So this is a this is a situation, it really depends upon the judge. Um, parenting matters involve a, a fairly broad discretion um, uh, in which different judges can come to different views, but there is a few things that are uh, that each of them will will consider. Um, that it, those factors include the effect of the uh, 
the change in the particular circumstances, the short effects, so things like identity and uh, and relationship with their, their both their parents, things like that. Advantages and advantages and disadvantages of the change. So, for example, if uh, they've got uh, siblings who uh, have different names, they go to the same school. They might be seen to be a benefit in the children having the same surname. Um, any embarrassment to the child. So, but what that generally means is, uh, again, a similar kind of thing. Kids, particularly primary school age kids, can be a little bit mean sometimes. And uh, uh, if if they feel as though they're on the outer because they've got a different surname than the, their their other siblings, so that might be a reason to to align things up a little bit more. Um, the the an, another important one is the the role that. Um, both of the parents play in the child's life. So I've had matters in the past where change of name applications have been successful where, let's say, the father uh, hasn't been around, it's not likely to be around, and the psychological mother in that case of the child is actually a subsequent partner of the mother. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's another factor you can look at. Um, and also... Um, how the, how the child identifies with a particular name. So sometimes what happens is uh, you've got a, um, a child who's might have a, a particular surname on a birth certificate but is, is, is known generally amongst friends, family, the community, schools, doctors, all those sorts of places by a surname which has been adopted um, informally and that could be a relevant consideration as well. In terms of options available to the court, um, a few different ways to do it. Um, the first way is to, in the traditional way, is to just pick a surname. It was often the, the, the father's surname which was picked. Um, then you saw a, an, an emergence about 15, 20 years ago of a different approach, which was to basically have a hyphenated surname. So um, the mother's maiden name usually or the mother's subsequent married name and uh, the, the father's name would be the, the, the names which were used. Um, there's been a, some judges have moved a little bit away from that though, um, and uh, they're, they're looking at other options, including perhaps having the mother's name as, or the father's name as a second middle name, for example. So the name, both of the surnames are then in the name. It's just that the child still has one surname, but perhaps a second uh, middle name. So just on that, is age, does age play a big part of it? Like if, if you want to change a 10-year-old's name, I'm assuming that's very different to changing a three- or four-year-old's name. I think it depends upon the facts, again, uh, in terms of what the what the child identifies with, uh, the role parents have played in the, in the child's life, whether there are any other yeah. um, important people in the child's life as well. I think, I think it comes, it's not so much, I mean, differences in age can be relevant to those factors, but I, I think ultimately... Uh, it comes back to the, the more specific things which are then represented by different ages sometimes. Okay, cool. All right, I might ask you the next question, which was about changing names because I think you might have sort of answered some of it, but this person wants to know, if I want to legally change my daughter's surname to my surname and she has been going by my surname sort of, as you mentioned earlier, Todd, unofficially since she was 18 months. Mm. I already know that her dad will say no. Um, also, he is inconsistent in her life and he goes months without contact. If I take it straight to the magistrate to give me permission to have her name changed, does that open the door for her father to then bring all parenting um, 
or care arrangements to be discussed um, and brought up. She's had a lot of conflicting information and advice on this one. Yeah, so that, and I think the reason why she's perhaps had the conflicting advice is that, um, or perhaps a, a reason why that's that's happened is that it really depends on where where she sits in terms of what sort of involvement she's had with uh, orders in the past, court orders in the past. There are orders in place, uh, then um, the whole idea of reopening up the broader thing might be may be a little bit difficult in the sense that a court, when a court makes final orders, it's intended that those orders are it. That's that's your shot. That's it. Uh, but yeah. The, but, but but the court acknowledges that there are circumstances where final orders need to be changed, or or there, an application can be made to consider a change. So. The threshold test that the court uses in, in that circumstance is, has there been a substantial and significant change in circumstances? So um, to give you an example of, let's say you've got some some orders are made in, in relation to an 18-month-old child. That child will have particular developmental needs at that age. Um, gen generally, it's accepted that uh, a child of that age should have a primary relationship with one parent and should have a a relationship which is still important but should spend a lesser amount of time with, with the other parent because of that child's particular developmental needs. Now, once you get to a child, once that 18-month-old child becomes four, five, six, seven, uh, the need that that child has to be close and more regularly to their primary attachment figure is is, is less significant developmentally. So yeah. in that circumstance, the court might say, all right, okay, um, we can have a look at the, the broader final orders um, again because the child's now older. Now, depending upon who, where, the, where the advice has come from, some lawyers might say, okay, well, look, no, there are final orders and that's it. Some lawyers might say, well, there are final orders, but has there been a substantial and significant change? Um, the next issue is some lawyers, and I've come across this from time to time, some lawyers might think that because there are final orders in place, that means you can't go back or anything. Now, that's not necessarily the case. It's not specifically the case because if you've got final orders that deal with um, live with, spend time with parental responsibility and those sorts of things, and then a particular issue comes isn't covered in those final orders, then the parties aren't prevented from then making an application in relation to that specific issue. So if um, change of name wasn't contemplated uh, in the first set of proceedings, uh, the court can come back, sorry, the parties can come back and say, we need to make this specific application. I've had other matters where there's been applications made in relation to passports, schooling, those sorts of things. So you're not precluded from doing that. It's just unless you establish substantial and significant change, you can't go back 18 months later uh, and really, really, really yeah, mitigate. Just go, hey, nothing's changed, but I'm back for another shot. <laughs> that's that's it. That's it. So that, that might be an explanation for why... Um, why the questioner has got different advice. What about if there's um, no court orders in place to date? Well, in that case, if she files, if, if the lady in question files the application for change of name, then there's nothing stopping him filing a broader application in response. Right. And is that, I don't know, I'm guessing he would probably see a lawyer and then maybe the lawyer would suggest that. But is that... It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that person, the father, would 
you know, if he's been inconsistent, like does she need to be worried that suddenly she's going to, you know, have to do 50-50? I think she's probably more concerned about her child having to go with this person who she barely knows, opening that door, you know. Mm. I mean, how does it? Look, when people ask me that, at the end of the day I say to them, you know your ex better than me or anyone else you might talk to. Um, And the... The person, the lady who asked the question said that he's been inconsistent and goes months without contact. That would suggest that it is uh, perhaps a little bit disinterested. However, sometimes what happens is when you, you, you're handed those court documents, you start to think to yourself, okay, well, this is a little bit more serious now. This is uh, not just a situation where we've got some sort of some informal thing in place where I can come and go. Um, this is a legal document, and uh, you know perhaps I should take this a little bit more seriously. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I remember when the the shared care legislation came in in two thousand and six, and I had a, a a few mums come through in the first six to twelve months after that, and uh, they were dealing with a situation where historically um, the father hadn't been involved, and uh, then they got a bit of a surprise when they, they saw Dad at court and then Dad was asking for fairly substantial time. Now, the way the courts dealt with um, how they how much time they gave a, a, a spend time with a parent in a case like that, it's um it's the approach has changed over time, has become more refined over time. Uh, it's not the situation anymore where you really just, you know, put the kids straight into three days a week or something like that. It's it's much more nuanced than that now. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I think the best answer I can give you, questioner, is this. Um, she knows this gentleman um, and 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 I think there's a judgment call uh, for her there on the basis of what the, the, the benefits to her might be and what the disadvantages to her might be. And she, that's what it needs to make. Yeah, Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Um, And then there's one more question which is related to name changes, and that one is, um, where are we? My ex hasn't seen my son in three years since before he was incarcerated for six months for DV towards me. Is there a way I can get full custody and change his name? We live in Sydney, and I recently found out he is now living in Brisbane. Um, Similar kind of... um answer to the, the previous question in the sense that there's a there's an assessment you need to make about benefits and disadvantages. Now, it sounds to me as though what's happening in this case is a child lives with the mother, the mother makes the decisions about school, medical, uh, those sorts of things at the moment, and, and the father's, I'm assuming, is fairly distant, um, not really involved at all. Now, the issue that arises here is... Um, I'll talk about what's called parental responsibility first. So parental responsibility is about who, what sort of, who makes decisions about long-term issues affecting the child, where they go to school, what sort of medical treatment they receive, what sort of religion they follow, uh, housing, all of those sorts of things. Um, where there are no orders, um, there's a concept called joint parental responsibility. Um, now, what that means is it's it, that's, that's a construct of law where it's, it's based on an assumption that, that the parents are still together. So, look, you know, the, well, everyone who's watching will know the situation where you've, you've got two parents who are living together. You, um, 
uh, mum might take the child to the doctor and uh, accept a prescription and uh, and medicate the child, make a decision to medicate the child in in accordance with the doctor's advice. In that yeah. case, she doesn't need she doesn't need to um, uh, to call up the the father and say, "Do you consent to this?" Because there's, yeah. uh, there's 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 an assumption underlying that relationship, which is that uh, an assumption. Teamwork. <laughs> Teamwork. That's right. So, um, so you, you you don't need. There's no. There isn't that need to consult and agree uh, about about decisions of that nature. Now, what happens is when parents separate, uh, that underlying assumption of the relationship changes because you're no longer you're no longer together. Uh, and uh, what tends to happen sometimes is um, one person feels as though because the child they're not with the child all the time they're not able to participate. So um, the family law actually then introduces a concept which is called equal shared parental responsibility. Now what that means, it's it's similar to joint in the sense that both parents have parental responsibility, uh, but the difference is that rather than uh, that underlying trust where one person can just exercise it without talking to the other one, equal shared parental responsibility requires that communication. And it requires that that agreement. Um, now there is another another order that the court. There are another two orders that the court can make, but they're both fairly. Is similar. that sorry to quickly jump in? Is that equal yeah. shared? What is it? Equal shared responsibility. Equal shared parental responsibility. Yep. Equal shared parental responsibility. Is that assumed? Like, is that so? When a couple separates, that's kind of automatic. You've now got no. equal shared. No, no. it's got to no. be ordered. No, no. So it only comes about either by order or by agreement through a parenting plan or, or something oh, of that okay. sort. Yeah. So the other type of order or the other provision you can have in a parenting plan is what's called sole parental responsibility. Now there's a there's a similar kind of thing to that, which is sole parental responsibility in consultation with somebody else. So sole parental responsibility means you just make the decision yourself. You don't need to consult. You don't need to agree because you're the only one that has it. Of course, you're going to agree with yourself. Our parental responsibility in consultation with means that you need to talk to the other parent, but you ultimately make the decision having listened or not listened uh, to what they've had to say. Uh, so the, in terms of the, the situation that the, uh, the question is in here, I assume that there are no orders, so she's got joint parental responsibility with the father. I assume that um, he's not involved. He's not. She's not calling him and asking asking him what he thinks about um, where where the kid goes to school, medical treatment, all that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, and I assume that he, there's no indication that he's looking to change that. So the reality is, we in a situation like that. Um, I always think in family law proceedings there are there are two broadly speaking two types of parties. One person who's generally speaking happy with how things are going, one person that wants to change everything. Uh, yeah. I would have thought that the, the person in this case would be fairly comfortable with the fact that uh, she gets to make the decisions at the moment, the child lives with her, and it, if the child spends any time with the father, and I'm not sure whether that's happening, but if the child's spending any time with the father or communicating with the father at all, that's in accordance with her agreement. Now, when you go to court, um, uh, when you go to court, there's there's always the potential that the court's going to impose upon you things that you wouldn't otherwise want to do. And in circumstances where 
um, the, the question is basically the, the circumstances are affected. He would like, except for the facts that she doesn't have the, the, the name change, um, the benefit of the name change, and except for the fact that she doesn't have the security of orders. Uh, it's, it's most of the things I think are, are, are what she's looking for. So, again, it's an assessment about uh, benefits and disadvantages. The, the, the potential benefit is she gets the order she wants because he doesn't turn up. Um, the, the, the potential benefit is she gets the security of the orders that she's looking for, but there's always the risk of um, going the other way to where he turns up and decides that he wants to be involved. Uh, and, and often what happens in this case is um, uh, the questioners outline the facts surrounding the breakdown of their relationship as she understands them. Uh, he might have a different view about that and that might then need to be tested over time in terms of whether whether um, points. Um, so I think it's it's really just it's really just an assessment. And, and again, I, th I think the questioner knows this gentleman better than most people. And the, the question that, that she, as well as the last question, has got to ask herself is, if by bringing an application and having before him those documents, showing him that I want the court to basically put their rubber stamp on what uh, is happening at the moment, is this likely to lead to him to get involved or not? Mm. So that's the assessment that needs to be made in that case. Um, but there's certainly benefits to getting orders. Yeah. it's. I always find it interesting that it's really, I think, I don't know, my opinion on like the reason why um, people get so many different conflicting advice is like because, like you said, at the end of the day, like it lies in the hands of the judge and all the judges may just have a slightly different opinion. So I guess it's yeah, so hard to the reality, the reality also is that this advice, the, the people who are asking these questions would be getting these, this advice at a first consultation. Now, yeah. I, or even friends I, or family. Yeah, look, look, look possibly. And I mean, I can't, I can't pretend that I've ever sat on the other side of the uh, that, that table myself, but I can certainly uh, understand that it'd be a pretty stressful thing and, that there, there are things that um, you might say, you might remember to say in one consultation that you might not remember to say in another one. And those things, mm. depending upon, look, it depends, it depends how well the, the lawyer leads you as well in terms of getting the information. But there might be some things that um, are um, important that, that don't get, um, brought don't up. get, uh, the lawyer doesn't know about. Yeah, it does, don't get brought up. doesn't get brought up. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think like, I think the good thing about the court process, even though it's like mm. a pain in the neck because it can drag on mm. for years, is that mm. with people like it sounds like to me in the last two questions that the fathers mm. are really not that involved. And I think you have to be really committed to mm. want to proceed and progress with, with mm. a legal thing, like because otherwise you just mm. don't like... I just think the people that aren't interest, that interested, they're just not going to stick with it. Um, I would love for it to be that simple, uh, but it's not always that simple. Um, mm. Certainly, I, I mean, I primarily act in the, the Newcastle registry and um, sometimes, uh, it, sometimes it does have that effect. And, and whether they're able to pay for lawyers or not, the, the County Court does deal with a lot, and the Federal Circuit Court does deal with a lot of self-represented litigants, and yeah. uh, and and um, there are people that who you know they they prepare very they pre 
they prepare a lot in terms of the sort of stuff they bring in the court. But sometimes they're a bit like deer in headlights and that sort of thing as well. But to come back to the, the point you were making before, uh, I, I think that once you, you you see, at least from time to time, people when they're served with documents, they realise the significance of that, whereas they perhaps don't realise the significance of the status quo where there are no orders. Uh, and that's it, it can lead people uh, to who were previously not interested to become interested. Um, I don't have yeah. any stats on that. Uh, it's, it's something which it's something which you know it's, it depend really depends on. Um, but it's an assessment that the that each client needs to make. And that's certainly something that I talk to a person in this situation about as well. Um, you know, what's what are the benefits to you in proceeding? What are the disadvantages to you in proceeding? Uh, and it's very personal. Um, it's a very personal uh, answer. Yeah, depends on the facts. Yeah. Just quickly, going on what you just said something before about representing yourself, so many people um, are unsure if this is a good idea or not and Mm. my personal experience when I went to court, I felt like the judge was quite lenient on my ex who um, was representing himself and I also Mm. thought that he got to sort of share his side of the story um, and, you know, mm. it was he could use emotive language and, like, you know, I felt like I felt like I was actually he was advantaged by not having mm. a lawyer. What, what's your opinion on it? Um, there are probably a few different ways, a, a few different things to consider uh, in answering that. Um, and it also depends on the judge as well. I mean, we, uh, uh, I had until recently had some experience with a judge who uh, was very keen on, um, how can I put this? Uh, <laughs> he likes to hear what pe- um, people had to say and, uh, and um, self-represented litigants as well, and sometimes that meant that it took a little bit of time to get things done. Um, if there are any um, any of my colleagues are watching this, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't, I'm not going to say anymore, though. Um, Why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we want to know. <laughs> this, this, this is Facebook. Everything is recorded. Uh, <laughs> I, might t- I, I might tell you later. Uh, all right. All right. Um, <laughs> deal uh all right um uh so all right so there's there's some case law which talks about how judges have have got a uh, there's a concept in family law in any law any area of law called um, procedural fairness so you don't want to have a situation where a self-represented litigant goes in there and they don't understand the law and because they don't understand the law they basically don't get an opportunity to present a case uh, because the case gets mired down in technicality and um, lawyers have a field day, but self-reps kind of get smashed, basically. Um, so the judge has an obligation. You would have experienced this yourself where the judge will sit there and will in, some will do it more so than others, but will explain the process in fairly painstaking detail at times so the self-reps person is then able to present their case. Um, so there is that aspect of it and that can, I can certainly understand how a person sitting on the other side of the bar table with their lawyer next to them is, is sitting there thinking, 
why does he get to say all these things about me? Uh, and uh, and you don't get up and say, you know, you can't say that or, you know, that's yeah. hearsay or whatever. You just have uh, to sit there and take it. The, you can't set up and go, no, that's not true. Yeah, you, you do. Look, generally speaking, my experience with judges, certainly in Newcastle, is that they're, they're very good in terms of allowing a person the opportunity to have their say, but then giving that the weight that it deserves. Um, but you still have to give the person the opportunity to have their say. Uh, look, yeah. In terms of in terms of the benefits of a, a lawyer uh, versus being self reps, look, I suppose in a way it's almost like saying, you know, do I get a surgeon to conduct his surgery or do I? Uh, just you know, get out get out a scalpel and do it myself. Um, uh, I would of course say that you should get the surgeon, and therefore you should of course get the lawyer. Um, look, experience tells me that uh, experience tells me that there are there are benefits and many benefits you get from having a lawyer that you don't necessarily see, um, but. Um, Look, I've seen cases where there were self-got outcomes that uh, weren't anywhere near as good as they would have got if uh, they had a good lawyer. Oh, yeah. Then again, I've, from, time, from time to time, I've seen out, um, people get uh, outcomes which were probably not as good as they could have got if they had a good lawyer because they had a bad lawyer. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's, it's like anything really. you got to, if you're going to get someone, get someone who's good. I think. But how do we know? How do us normal people know who's good? A few ways you can do it. Um, firstly, ask around. I, I think that uh, particularly in family law, um, uh, it's it's easier uh, than, let's say, in commercial law to pick someone who's good um, because uh, you, go, you, you speak to people who've had the experience. They've gone through a process of not just a court date but over a period. I've understood how good a lawyer is at, at interpreting the law, how good a, um, uh, a lawyer is at um, managing them, um, talking to the judge, all those sorts of things. So I think the word of mouth is a good way to do it. Um, the Law Society has a, a, has a, and you mentioned accreditation before, the Law Society has a, an award that they uh, give to lawyers who are particularly skilled in an area of law, and that's specialist accreditation. So. Uh, of course, given that I have it, I would say look for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what I would say in relation to that, though, is be careful about the, the way other lawyers might market themselves sometimes because um, you, you can only call yourself an accredited specialist if you have the accreditation, but I see um, reference to expert and even specialist I've seen some lawyers use when they're not accredited specialists, but because they use a the right sort of language. Um, uh, it's uh, it's it's a little bit confusing, I think, for people when they're looking for someone who who's objectively qualified and, and skilled. So I'd look for that. And uh, there's a third um, um, third thing to look at as well, which is basically a lot of lawyers will do first consultations, uh, various ways that they um, some will do it for no. For, generally speaking, the good ones don't do. Uh, first consultation but some there might be someone uh but though Don't certainly so I, I know get, that what get, I, so if you get charged for first there's, there's, it's a good one <laughs> no nah, look there's there there are there are I, I know there are, i know there are lawyers who do it because i know some who do it um, yeah. but 
Um, usually, though, usually that's that's a marketing technique. And see, my first degree was in in business with a major in marketing, so I know that it's a pricing strategy. And and what yeah. they're looking to do is they're looking to get people through the door to build up a practice and kind of try and get the snowball sort of thing. Um, but there are a lot the of practitioners. But yeah, get it, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, get it, yeah, get it, yeah, basically, yeah. So it's it's a pricing strategy, and and um, you know what what you do after the first consultation, whether you get those fees back in another way through charging more or whatever. Um, but the, yeah. the the idea behind it, the, the the fundamental idea behind giving a customer in in any kind of service service industry or for any good. Giving them something for free is is to closure for yourself, uh, get word of mouth for yourself, develop that to then build a business later. And and I think the this the the reality underpinning that is that uh, um, there's not much of a business there to start with, which is why they're using the strategy. Mm. Um, and and so what what assessment do you draw from that? Most Certainly, I do it, and, and I know a lot of lawyers do it. Is that um, you don't want to go? I've seen this happen too. You don't want to go and see someone for a first consult and then have it all time recorded to the dollar and end up with a bill of a thousand dollars in the first consult for letters and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. You, you, a, 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 someone's entitled to to see a lawyer, be able to work them out, and have some sort of confidence in how much they're going to they're going to pay. Uh, so a strategy that you can use as a lawyer for that is to have a fixed fee first consultation, and and I think that's a, probably the best strategy to use in that case because it allows the the lawyer to get a sense of the client, it allows the client to get a sense of the lawyer, and then yeah. to go to go back to your question, it then allows the the client to then assess as best as you can at a first consult uh, what. Uh, what they think of the lawyer, and it's one of the one of the other things that I do after the first consult. I, I don't. Um, sometimes I have clients who are very keen to sign up on the day and want to sign costs agreements and that sort of thing. And I, I have a particular rule, which is I won't do that on the first day because I like people to go away and overthink about it. Now sometimes that might not be a good outcome for me, but I, I've found that often that it is because it gives them the opportunity to go away and have to think about what they think of me. And. Yeah. Uh, and they come back the next next day, or if it's on a Friday on the Monday, or sometime the next week, they've had time to think about it. Uh, I think that's a good thing. So that that's probably another thing I'd say is ask around, contact the law society to see who's got accreditation, uh, go and see a few lawyers, make an assessment. But when you make the assessment, uh, don't just jump straight in. Uh, have a have a listen to what they say. Go away and have a think about it. Uh, and then once you're you're away from that situation, which is a pretty stressful situation usually, and is is not a good environment to make assessments like that. So once you're able to go away and and make the assessment, I think that's probably a good way to do it. Yeah, you've got to get a good vibe, don't you, with your lawyer? You got to feel like they're on your side, on your yeah. team. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, uh, it's. Look, I think a, a family lawyer client relationship is like a doctor patient relationship in the sense that the family law client's going to tell their family lawyer all sorts of stuff that they probably wouldn't tell most people. Um, I don't I don't subscribe to the, the view that no, I think you've got to be careful as a family lawyer. You don't want to essentially be just a, a messenger for your client either. You've got to be able to say to your client, um, you've got to be able to tell your client when 
um, there are problems in their case. Yeah. Because because the I think the worst thing you can do as a lawyer is just sit there for the ride and just, you know, time record, get the bill up, and then at the end of the end of the day, uh, you get a judgment and the judgment's completely the opposite of what the client was looking for. And you say, Oh gee, that was that was that was unfortunate. Gee, we the judge must have had a bad day, or you know, we really we just we uh, we got we're on the wrong side of that. If you're a good family lawyer, if yeah. you're a good lawyer in any area of law, uh, you've got a fair idea of a range, uh, particularly in property stuff. Um, mm. I mean, the, the issue with property stuff is things like, you know, what information you have and whether there are things that you should know that you, you don't know about and that sort of stuff. But certainly with property stuff, there's the regular sorts of house and garden stuff that I have um, come through my door. Uh, I'll speak to a client for three quarters of an hour, ask all the questions I need to ask, and I'll pretty much know whereabouts their matter is going to be. Uh, and yeah. I think the obligation is if, you, if I've got a client coming in saying, I want 90-10 of the, of the matrimonial asset pool, and it's a situation where it's a long marriage, they both have fairly similar incomes, their kids are all adults, uh, that sort of thing. And, and I'll know that in the absence of anything remarkable, it's pretty much 50-50. If I have a client say to me 90 10, I think I've got an obligation to say to them, no, I don't think that's it. If you if you want me to run that case, I will. But I'm telling you now, and I'll confirm this in writing, that it's not. Uh, so if you want to if you want to run that, then you know, all right. But um, just so you know that uh, you know, I told you long it's ago. Not, yeah, it's not looking good. <laughs> no, that's right. So look, so, yeah, there, there is there are some lawyers who'll just kind of. Uh, you know, go along with the ride, but I, I, I don't think good ones do. No. Okay. So research, recommendations, accreditation, um, and, and time. maybe a fixed and time. Time? Yeah, give yourself time. Give yourself give time. Give yourself time. Yeah, I like that because you don't want to be pressured to make a decision on the spot. And No, and sometimes yeah. clients feel as though they need to and they don't. Yeah, yeah. They're not going anywhere. They're not going. Well, anywhere. usually, usually, usually the lawyer's not going. I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> usually. <laughs> All right. I feel like there's more to that story. You might have to find out about that later. <laughs> that's 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 the uncut version. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. If you've just joined us, I'm talking to Todd Street, who is answering all our family law questions. And we've just um, gone over some questions about changing names and self-representation and just finding a lawyer in general. And now I just added a few in of my own in between there, but um, I'm just going to now ask the next question, which is, I would like to ask how easy it is to get into the consent orders for the kids, something that will allow me travelling overseas with the kids to see my family. Yes, yeah, so the, the first thing is um, how easy it is to get into consent orders generally depends upon whether the other side will consent to it. Um, so assuming, though, that there isn't consent to us, how easy is it to get, in, get orders made about it? really depends... Um, look, generally speaking, it's it's seen to be a good idea for uh, 
kids to be able to travel the world and broaden their horizons and that sort of stuff. It's good, good for them to be able to do that sort of stuff. Um, by the same, by the same token, if there's a proposal to take the kid on a family holiday or to Syria, uh, then that's probably that's probably going to be looked at a little bit differently to a family holiday to uh, the UK or to the States or to New Zealand or somewhere like that. Um, yeah. So there's there's a, there's a bunch of things that the court looks at. Uh, it looks at um, in that case the any safety issues. Um, uh, another important one also is uh, there's a convention called the Hague Convention on, on Child Abduction. Basically, what that means is that um, you remember a few years ago there was the the news there was the news story about um, the, the, the 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 Italian girls. The, one, the ones Sally? that came over. Was the mum called Sally? I, I can't remember now. Um, I maybe. Sally, but not, I know who you mean. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was the there was went there to was Lebanon. Not, was that Lebanon? No, 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 no. This is that. Yeah, no. That's the sixty minutes one. No, I'm talking about something different to that. Oh. Well, Lebanon. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was there was a case involving uh, a mum and uh, some children uh, who had left Italy uh, with on the basis that they would return, and then they didn't. Um, the father in Italy then brought uh, an application in Italy under the Hague Convention to have the, the children. Returns Italy. Um, the mother contested that, and there are a whole series of decisions of the family court. Um, I think it was in where Queensland. Did she, where did she go? I think she was in Queensland. Oh, um, I remember now. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep. yep. Okay. So that's an example of a case where there was uh, the Hague Convention applied in both countries, and ultimately the children yeah. were returned to the father because. The attitude basically was there weren't the, the family court here wasn't going to get into a uh, a, a long consideration of the substantive um, merits of Italy versus Australia, but rather because the, the Hague Convention basically says if you um, basically um, the the expression is abduct the kids and take them to another country, then generally speaking, the attitude is that. Um, the children should be returned to the first country and then you should go through your family law process there. Um, not all countries are signatories to the Hague Convention, which means that let's say, for example, that's like the Sally Field movie, Not Without My Daughter in Iran or um, mm. I think Lebanon, my understanding is Lebanon's a similar situation as well where they don't have the, the, the they're not signatories to Hague either, which means that um, the, the mother in that case couldn't um, have contacted the central authority in Australia, asked them to then contact the Lebanese equivalent, got the child returned. So uh, Lebanon, uh, as I understand it, yeah, that's right. So that's that then led to the uh, the, the situation involving um, the so 60 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, so that's – so in that sort of circumstance – that country might be treated, a proposed trip to that country might be treated differently to Italy or to New Zealand or, or somewhere like that. So other things that the court looks at when it thinks about international travels, how long the travel will be. So if yeah. the travel's intended to be six months and the kid's in shared care, uh, then the court might look at it differently than if the proposed travel's three weeks and the, the it's during uh, a, a parent's time during school, Christmas school holidays or something like that. 
So there's yeah. there's a, there's the, the the variance, and it depends on the facts. Just quickly going back to the Hague Convention, what about hmm. let's say you've got a mother or a father that want to take their kids on a holiday to I don't know Thailand, hmm. and then that's all fine, but then they go from Thailand, they fly to a country that is not a part of the Hague Convention. Like, isn't that a concern as well? Yeah, so one of the things that the court does uh, when it makes orders is it says that the person who's intending to travel needs to give notice of their intention of travel. Uh, they need to give notice of uh, the length of the proposed travel, where they intend to stay, uh, an itinerary, um, copies of return airfare, Air tickets, um, airline tickets, uh, and the intention behind that is that it, you'll be able to flesh out whether there's a, an issue about a likely um, absconding, uh, because if the intention is to take the kid to a third country, then presumably they won't pay for return airfares; um, mm. they'll pay for a single, uh, single way or one way only. Um, they won't be able to give the detail about bookings with um, hotels and things like that. They won't be able to give the detail about where specifically they're going to be because the idea, the idea is that they're just going to skip town. Um, yeah. you, you, of course, you, you can never legislate against that completely, but the idea is that you put protections in place to manage the or to mitigate the risk. Yeah, yeah. I guess as well just like in terms of the holidays, I mean, it's not like the court or the judge is out to just be a pain. Like, if it seems reasonable, like it's yep. Uh, you know. yep. Generally speaking, generally speaking, I think the attitude is that um, international travel is a positive thing for uh, broadening a child's horizons, and that it's generally a good thing. But um, yeah, you just you just there there'll be some protections in place to make sure that yeah, you just put some protections in place. Okay, the next question is, my ex is no longer in my son's life at all. It hasn't been for three years. If something was to happen to me, either I got injured or died, how do I go about making sure that a particular family member got my son? Um, under, I'll talk about this in the context of New South Wales law. So I assume that... Um, there might be some people who are listening to this who are who are outside that, but so I can only speak in relation to New South Wales law. If you, when you do a will, you you can nominate what's called a testamentary guardian. Uh, now that's effectively an expression of a wish by you that in the event that you pass away, you would like this person to look after the child. Um, generally speaking, um, some uh, that's something that if there were subsequent proceedings, uh, it'd be something that would be considered. Ultimately, the court would, would make its own assessment, and, and it's important, I think, at this point to um, to to make this point that uh, that uh, appointment of a test or nomination of a testamentary guardian doesn't prevent proceedings, uh, unless, um, generally speaking, the family court's able to hear applications in relation to that. So there's there's not uh, there's not really you, you can't lock that away, lock and key. Um, I think it's more a situation not of preventing that application but maximising the chances of getting the outcome you want. So uh, if if uh, 
the sort of thing that, that I'd suggest that people look at is firstly, you can do the nomination, so you've got the expression of your wish and your will. Um, choose someone who's responsible, um, who's not likely to fall foul of an assessment in the family court, uh, and also uh, do the best that you can to make sure that there's a, you know, a strong positive relationship between the child or the children and that person or persons. Um, that's, I think that's probably the best way to, to handle that issue. There's no guarantee, though, is there? Like, if if one parent were to die, you can't say no. Mm. I don't. I don't like the father, or I haven't spoken to the father. He's not going to have a. This person's going to have my son or my daughter. Like, it would automatically go to the other parent unless someone fights it. Oh, uh, look. I think what tends, in my experience, what tends to happen is that if if one parent's not around uh, and that's that's the nothing. Um, then you, you've got to question whether that person's going to find out upon death anyway. I think the reality True. is that um, what what would probably happen is that in the event that something unfortunate like that happens, then the child would just automate. There'd be a conversation between the surviving family members, and um, there'd be an acknowledgement of what's in the will. And usually, the child would just end up going to where the to wherever it was the. the the deceased person wanted that that child to go, um, but no, there's no guarantee. It's just the same as if the person doesn't die, there's no guarantee that there won't be an application in relation to the child either. So it's there's it's no difference whether the whether that person's alive or deceased. Uh, an application can be bought. Question of what the court does with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Whew, it's a little bit morbid. Okay. Let's. Not think about that right now. Now, what no. do you do if you have an IVO and have been told three different interpretations as to what the rules are by three different lawyers? And this person said it doesn't have to be three, just multiple multiple interpretations by multiple lawyers. Yep. And can you clarify um, what an IVO is? Um, an IVO is, on, I think it's an expression used in Victoria for an intervention order. Um, now, in New South Wales, they're called AVOs or AVVOs or APVOs. Um, so basically, apprehended violence orders. Um, now, it's an IVO, whether it's an IVO or an AVO, it's more of a creation of uh, the criminal law than the family law. The family law recognises them, uh, and, and um, they're a relevant factor when the court makes decisions, particularly about parenting matters. Um, yeah. But I, th I think at the end of the day, probably the best thing I could say in relation to that is um, if the person who's asking the question is the defendant in the AVO, then they should take a conservative approach on uh, what, the, uh, what the what the AVO says and just avoid doing the things that the AVO says that they shouldn't do. If it's an issue where it's um, the, the, the person who's asking the question is the person in need of protection, so the the one that's the ABO is protecting. Um, yeah. uh, it would really depend upon, I suppose, what their question is. It's difficult for me to say too much because I don't know what the particular issue is in terms of why the interpretations. Uh, that might be again related to the issue uh, in the sense of there might be different ways to, to to look at it. But it's it's difficult for me to say too much more without knowing more about it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Why why would there be this ambiguity anyway? Like, are these things not clarified in the court? Like, 
can you walk in and go, just wondering um, what this means, you know, like <laughs> what do you, like how do you, how can there be a misinterpretation of it? Uh, there are many ways to skin a cat sometimes. And, uh, and look, I think, I think probably the best way for um, to deal with it is probably to talk to the local chamber magistrate at the South Wales, the local court. Uh, if it's Victoria, I think it's the magistrate's court. Um, go into the to the registry and have a talk to the chamber magistrate and and see what they say. Because at the end of the day, it'll be the court that'll be in, in, interpreting it, not a, not a lawyer. I, to be honest, without having further info, I just don't know why why there's yeah. the there's the different interpretation. Yeah. Okay. Next question is: Recordings, audio and or video, are not allowed to be admitted. Is that correct? Um, I said in the relation to the first question, the different judges have different approaches. Um, some judges are, are, are very black letter and they, t they tend not to like letting that sort of stuff in others or just, you know, throw it in and see, see what happens with it sort of thing. The reason why there's the issue is there's a, there's a New South Wales state legislation called the Surveillance Devices Act, which makes it a criminal offence to record private conversations without the consent of the other party. Um, subject to certain exceptions, yeah, and, and yeah. You, you know you do see it, you do see it from time to time when people will bring in recordings to the conversations to try and advance their case. Um, look, the, the the issue ultimately turns on on consent in relation to the recording, and um, look, um, in, in terms of what the court does, the court needs to make an assessment of how prejudicial the um, the the evidence is and whether it was improperly obtained or whether it's by consent. Um, so the answer, I think, to your question is um, some judges will look pretty harshly on it. Others will say, okay, well, was there consent? Uh, and others will say, okay, what's the value of this evidence and can we get it before the court in another way? So if you've got a recording of the conversation where, um, let's say, the police also saw the conversation or heard the conversation and there's something in a police subpoena about it, um, then they might say, well, do we really need the recording? We can just, um, we can just, we can get the evidence before the court in the other way. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, it really, cool. it really comes back to that act. Yeah. Wasn't that amazing? Todd is absolutely fantastic. Todd, thank you so much again for your time and for answering all these questions. And we're actually going to continue the chat in next week's episode, which will be out on Wednesday, because, you know, we just had so much to talk about and Todd just gave so many great answers. So I didn't want to leave anything out and I didn't want to make this episode super, super long either because I know that we are all a little bit time limited, especially as single parents. So Please join me next week to hear more from Todd, who is answering more of the questions that you guys sent in to me. Guys, don't forget that Todd is available to work remotely. So no matter where you are in Australia, Todd is your guy. So if you want to get in touch with him, I will put his website in the show notes, as I mentioned, but it's www.streetlawyer.com.au. And you can also find him on Facebook and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Todd, thanks so much again. And for you listening at home or wherever you are, thank you for listening as well. 
It's been great to have you this week. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at julia at singlemothersurvivalguide.com or you can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook. I'm just at Single Mother Survival Guide. And if you want to pop on over to my website, which is just www.singlemothersurvivalguide.com, you can see all the different episodes, all the other episodes of the podcast. You can read the blog. You can find out how to do one-on-one mentoring work with me. And you can also book in for your 30-minute complimentary clarity call. Anyway, it was great to have you here. If you love the episode, I'd love for you to rate it in iTunes. It's very simple. You just go to the Single Mother Survival Guide podcast, which you can find in your podcast app. So if you've subscribed, it'll be under your shows. And if you haven't, you just search for it. And then towards the bottom underneath the episodes, you can either just tap the stars to rate it or just below that, there's a little option that says write a review. So you can do that as well. And for everybody who's already done that, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me because firstly, it's lovely to hear your feedback. And secondly, it makes the podcast easier for new single parents to find, which is great. So I really appreciate it. On a different note, my daughter is starting school tomorrow. Oh my gosh, is anyone in the same boat? I know there's a few of you who listen that I know of that have kids starting this week. It's crazy, isn't it? And for those of you who are overseas and a little bit confused in Australia, our school year starts in sort of end of January, early Feb. So and runs right through to December. So it's a little bit different. Oh my gosh, I just can't believe it's happening so fast. It's all a little bit emotional. But anyway, I'm so excited that she's starting. I'm so excited for her and she is super excited as well. So, oh my gosh, it's all kicking off tomorrow. Thank you so much. And I will speak to you guys next week with another fantastic episode. Okay, have a good week. Bye for now.